0: We are blessed to have on this campus the Christian Psychological Center started by my friend Lane Adams, a friend of many of you as well. It was a courageous thing to do back then when he started that center, licensed therapists trained in their profession as, as uh, psychological counselors, but uh, committed the gospel of Jesus Christ, delivering concentrated discipleship in the midst of that counseling. It's a great aid to me in my frailty as a human being, a frailty as an emotional human being. I'm grateful for the counseling I receive there on a regular basis from the loving people there. And my counselor recently recommended a book that uh, I see a number of you reading, which may mean we share the same counselors, and uh, it is by Sky Jathani. Sky Jethani is a writer for Christianity Today, and his latest book is simply titled, With. His thesis, his reason for writing the book is this. He says, my concern is that we're inoculating an entire generation to the Christian faith, Many come with a holy desire to know God, to experience His presence in their lives, but this is not what they see or experience. Instead, they are offered a substitute form of Christianity. One cannot break through the shadows and never really satisfy the deepest longings of their souls. Those misrepresentations of Christianity, he he puts in four different categories, life from God, life over God, life for God, and life under God. Basically, they are these: the one who worships according or lives the Christian life according to the according to the category of life from God is one who only pursues God to get something from Him. The one who uh, lives by life over God, it means that uh, that he only sees. God as a supplement to his life, and that he can call on God at any time like a divine bellhop, and that he'll get by those proven formulas what he needs for his life. Life for God is the one who says, the Christian life really is all about what I am doing for Him, and the more sacrificial and the more courageous I am, well, that's what pleases God, that's what increases His love for me. Or life under God is the one who thinks that God is only interested in the way you keep His laws. And so you're constantly wondering, what does God want me to do and how can I stay out of trouble with Him? All of these are inadequate. All of these fail to capture the grace of the Lord Jesus that runs from Genesis to Exodus. The purpose of the law itself, as we'll study tonight in the sermon I'll preach on the law of God, the Ten Commandments. What Jethani says, Jethani says it right when he says the Christian faith as presented in Scripture is not life from God, life over God, life under God, life for God. It is life with God, or better, God with us. All throughout Scripture, God is pursuing us, pursuing His, He is dogged in His determination to be with us, to be near us, so much so that He put flesh on, so much so that when He ascended back to heaven, that is Jesus, He sent the Holy Spirit to be within us. God with us. What difference will that make in your life if that is the way you are focusing, if that is the way you're living As a Christian, knowing that God desires to be with me and God is with me in Christ, if Christ indeed is my Lord and Savior, it makes a difference in four ways as we see it in this text. God is with us, God is with us in trauma. Chapter 13, verses 17 to 18 God is with us in trauma. They have finally. They have finally exited Egypt. What they have been longing for for 430 years has come. They haven't found a secret escape route. Uh, Pharaoh has demanded that they leave. The people of Egypt are demanding that. They, they're pushing them out the doors. They're giving them jewelry and clothing and supplies saying, leave us, leave us after the plague against the firstborn. But now what? People who have been living by as slaves always being told what to do and what not to do, living as total dependents, not developing skills for taking care of themselves, what are they going to do? They, They have their freedom, and now they're vulnerable. So God leads them. He tenderly shepherds them. Now, the, the, the track from Egypt up to Canaan is, is relatively short. It's a two-day journey by the Via Maris, by the, by the way of the sea. It's just hug the coast, and you'll get from Egypt to Canaan, even walking as slowly as you do. But as soon as they exit the gate, God says, now I want you to turn southeast. Not do north. Turn southeast. And go the long way around, not the two-day route, but the 40-year route. Now, there are complications that with the, that the 40 years. It wouldn't have taken that exactly that long, but it was going to take a lot longer than two days regardless. And the text tells us that the reason God led them that way is because the Philistines were between Egypt and Canaan. The children of Israel were not an army. They were identified as an army. They they were the Lord's army, and they could have marched on the Philistines, and God would have wiped out the Philistines as He is prone to do to Israel's enemies. But God in His mercy knew that this traumatized people, that if they saw people coming at them with swords and weaponry, they would be so traumatized that they would turn and run back to Egypt saying that better the devil we know than the devil we don't know. Exactly what they eventually said anyway, and exactly what they would say in other places, including the book of Numbers. And God says, mercifully, I'm going to take you around the Philistines. It's too too soon for you to face that kind of trigger for your trauma. He takes them around. This is the kind of God that we have, a God who deals kindly and compassionately with us in our trauma. Trauma explains a lot of behaviors that may not make sense otherwise. The person who has been trafficked, there's a 75% chance that she will return to the one who was her captor even after she's received freedom. It may be your ethnic background of being oppressed for 400 years as a people. You don't get over that kind of trauma overnight. It may be the traumatic relationship you are in with a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It may be the trauma that you are experiencing or have experienced from your Husband in the past. It may be the trauma you experienced from the cruel things that your parents said to you as a child. And it makes some of the simplest acts very difficult. Acts of discipleship can become very difficult because of that trauma. I want you to understand that the Lord understands and the Lord remembers that you are but dust and He has compassion on you as a father does on a child. There's a reason he's said to be the one who is the helper, the one who is the lifter of my head. He is my refuge and my fortress. He is the one who does not uh, snuff out a smoking flax or bruise a bruised reed. He tenderly cares for us as a merciful shepherd. He does hold us accountable for our choices. But He also holds us tenderly when we are broken. I've learned a lot about trauma from a woman named Bonnie Martin, who's a licensed therapist in Alexandria, Virginia. She's a, she's a speaker worldwide and an expert, especially on people who have been children and women who have been trafficked. She is an evangelical Christian. She believes in indwelling sin. She believes in original sin. She believes in total depravity. And she knows that people are individually responsible for sin choices. But she often has to tell people who are the victims of other people's evil choices, there is not something wrong with you. Something wrong has been done to you. In that context, they have to hear that. Because one of the things that makes evil evil is that the person who has been dehumanizing us convinces us that it's our fault, and we own it. And then we think that we're not worthy. We're not worthy of living, and we're not worthy of being God's child. I want you to see in the tender way that God deals with the children of Israel and the way He will have to deal with them for the rest of, of history in Scripture. He deals with traumatized people. whose neurotransmitters have been broken, have been wounded, have been scarred, and have to be tenderly reshaped and refocused. And you have a heavenly Father who calls Himself the God, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who is eager to bear with you and lead you and heal you. And i found in my Decades as a minister, that these kinds of crises, whether real or whether uh, whether they're hyperbole, and I'm not I'm not sure what this is, but these kinds of crises can expose, can trigger some of those traumas in the past. And though you don't see any rational connection between the spreading of a virus and what happened to you in your childhood, your brain feels it somehow. And I want you to know that God does not say to you in such a situation, there's something wrong with your faith. He says instead, I made you. I remember that you are but dust. I have compassion on you. Bring that burden to me. The second thing we find in our text in verse 19 is that He is with us in death. God does not cease to fulfill His promises to us in death, and He doesn't cease to use us even after we're dead. Joseph compelled his brothers on his deathbed to bury, uh, to, to, uh, to embalm him and put him in a coffin, now, Joseph, because of his stature in, in Egypt, was, uh, a, would have been afforded the honorific burial of, in the pyramid. He would, have been, he would have qualified to be mummified and put into a pyramid. But he said, no, you can embalm me. He adopted that Egyptian practice of embalming his body, but put me in a casket and if you've ever watched uh, the the charleston charleston heston version of the 10 commandments all 24 hours of it or how long it is you you see when they leave egypt there's the box bobbling along along the people that's joseph's bones they're fulfilling the word, the direction that he had given them hundreds of years before. When you leave and it's going to happen, God is going to liberate you and take you to the promised land. Take my bones there too and bury me in Shechem with my fathers so that I will give testimony that the promise made to Abraham has been fulfilled, that he is going to make us a great people and settle us in the land of promise. And as a testimony to the coming resurrection... Though Joseph had been dead for hundreds of years, his bones were still a witness. Every time the children of Israel were tempted to think, I'm not sure God remembers us. I'm not sure he, He's going to fulfill His promise. They could look over that casket and say, He kept that promise to Joseph. He's going to keep it to us. Make arrangements for your body. Plan your funeral. Not as a tribute to yourself, but as an enduring testimony to the God of promise. Allow your body to be tucked into a gravesite someday so that people will be able to point to that and say, His body belonged to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus has marked where that body is, and at the coming day, He will retrieve that body and transform mortality into immortality, and He will forever be with the Lord. It's an opportunity even after you're dead to Give Testimony to this beautiful truth that we repeat in every funeral service in this church, from the Heidelberg Catechism, the Lord's Day question number one, What is your only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. When You're convinced of those truths that you are united to Christ, not only spiritually but physically and that nothing can happen to you, not even a hair of your head except the will of the Heavenly Father, it will change the way you live through the coronavirus or any other crisis for that matter. He is with us in life and in death. He is with us in front of us to lead us. Chapter 13, verses 20 to 22, the people didn't know where to go. They had never been anywhere for 400 years how were they going to make it? How were they going to survive the desert? How were, they going to, how were they going to survive marauders and dangerous animals at night? It was the Lord who was going to become a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Hebrew is strong. It's not that God says, as you look at that cloud, remember, I'm up here caring for you, instead he says i will come as a cloud i will be with you as a cloud in the day and fire at night there is never going to be a time that you can't see me there will never be a time when you will wonder if i am with you i will be with you you know critical scholars who look at the bible and find all kinds of mistakes in them find it impossible to believe that this that this would be that that this was A real thing, that this kind of miracle occurred. And so, some critical scholars have observed the dust devils that occur in the Middle East and say, well, you know, that's what happened. The dust devil came up and and Moses skillfully pointed at it and said, see, God is with us. The problem is that the dust devil continued for 40 years. And the dust devil turned into a fire devil at night. There's no mistaking, this is a miracle, and this is the miracle of God's presence. It's a sacramental sign that God is with them. I will be as a cloud. And that cloud, we know elsewhere in Scripture, is called the Shekinah glory of God. When God's glory is referenced, it's a reference to His mercy, because His mercy is His glory. The the cloud... Was there, the pillar of fire at night was there because God is merciful, merciful to guide us. He does not leave us alone. He does not leave us to ourselves. He knows the plans He has for us to give us a hope and a future, to to prosper us and not to harm us, to lead us in the way that we should go, never to leave or forsake us. He is the one who is always with us to guide us, to be out front guiding us. But you say, you know, it would be a lot easier to be a Christian, a person of faith today if, if there were really that cloud and fire at night. If, if the cloud would just lead me to my next job, if I just had a cloud to lead me to the high school I'm supposed to go to, if I just had a cloud to go to the college, what I'm supposed to choose, if I had a cloud that lead me to my spouse, a cloud that lead me to the house I'm supposed to buy, to the ministry I'm supposed to engage, if I just had that cloud, if I just had that pillar of fire at night, I could do away with my alarm system. But you have that. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have His glory living inside of you. You say, well, if, you know, the disciples had it better. They didn't have a cloud. They had the person of Christ. If I just had Jesus here, Jesus could take me by the hand. I could just look in His eyes, listen to the words of His lips. That would be wonderful. You have something better. You have something better than Jesus with you. You think I'm speaking heresy? Jesus said, it is for your benefit that I go away. Because when I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit, who will not just be near you, not sometimes hidden in the bow of the boat, not sometimes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, He will be in you. He will be Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one who will make your body the temple. He is the one who will lead you by transforming your mind so that you may know the will of God, the good, perfect, and, and pleasing will of God, the one who by his secret instincts will guide your steps the one who confirms His promises to you, the one who who pours out the love of God in our hearts so that we have hope that is unconquerable. That's the way God is leading you now. He is in front of you. The way to be mindful of that is to live constantly, Coram Deo, as the Reformers would say, constantly conscious of the face of God. I'm in the presence of God. He is as near as my breath, and He's guiding me. I was on vacation this last week, and we were in a gift shop that that had some art that looked like I, I thought it must have been produced by a Memphis artist because it was all really cool musical art, and it's it was a it was they were they were fashioned into accented instruments, and then on those instruments were were created quotes from famous musicians like Jimi Hendrix, the when the power of love becomes greater than the love of power, then we will have peace. That's on the guitar. And then on another is, it's five o'clock somewhere, and, and other wise things like that. So I, I was shuffling through and wanting to say, it was just interesting, the quotes that came from these various artists, and I got to, to a little bitty one on the back, shuffling through the the filing of them, and and this one said, I have a plan. So I, I lifted it up a little higher. It says, trust me. I lifted it up to see who said it. It says, God. I have a plan. Trust me. God. Not only is He with you in front of you to guide you, He's with you in between you and His and your enemies." You know, chapter 14 seems to undercut the earlier things that I said about God tenderly leading His people away from those triggering instances in battle, but here He leads them certainly into something that's going to trigger them, and it did. After they get out a certain distance from from Egypt, He says, now I want you to turn around, I want you to march, march back and i want you to get i don't, I don't want you to, to find shelter among the 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 rocky crags of the topography i want you to i want you to find i want you to get out in the desert fully exposed and back yourself up against the red sea fully exposed 270 degrees and then with your back to the red sea they obeyed And then they heard the hoofbeats. 600 chosen chariots and then all the other chariots, upwards of 1,000 chariots on their way, the most brutal and terrifying weapons of war in the day, on their way straight at Israel. Now Israel is triggered. It would have been better to stay in Egypt. We could have been buried there. If you had to kill us, you should have just killed us there. Why would you bring us all the way? Well, what is God doing? God is creating a ruse. He had them wandering in a circle to play into Egypt's false theology, the theology that, that gods get tired of you, they get bored with you, and then they just leave you. And so he gets the report that they're wandering around in the desert, and he said, sure enough, I knew God would give up on them eventually. They're a troublemaking group of people. He's given up on them, so let's go get them. Here's my chance to get my revenge. They made a fool of me. They took my, my, their God took my firstborn son away from me. We will annihilate them. God brought Egypt and the mighty armies against Israel. So that he could undeniably, undeniably defeat them and get his glory. But he had another agenda, agenda for his people. His people had to know that his God, that it was their God, who fought battles for them. They had to know that they were that their, that their protection was not up to them. They had to know that they couldn't depend on anything else, not their own savvy, not their own resources, not their own goodness, not their own faith. They had to know that only the Lord could could defend them and protect them. So God says, I want you to look at those things. For your good that you look at those soldiers coming right at you, those bloodthirsty oppressors. I want you to look into their faces because you will never see them again. Stay tuned for what happens. But God had to prove. He had to prove to His people. He is the one who fights for them and protects them. And it's true of every suffering, every difficulty, every crisis, every trial, every trauma that comes into your life. It is ultimately to show not only that there is evil in this world, but it is ultimately to show that God, that evil will not triumph over God, but Christ will rule and reign till he brings all enemies under his feet, and he is the one who fights for you when you cannot fight for yourself. Reasons to live courageously. God is with us in our trauma, he's with us in death, he's with us out in front of us to lead us, he's with us in between the enemy, and ourselves. I became a pastor at a very young age, and I came from a family that had no pastors in it. I had no one to guide me. So I graduated from seminary. I hadn't even graduated from seminary I became a pastor, and I didn't even know the right questions to ask. So I knew I had to have people in my life I could interview that could be my mentors I get asked questions of. I wanted to work for somebody like that. I wanted to work for Sandy Wilson. He wouldn't hire me. I wanted to to learn uh, from people. I did. I did learn from Sandy. He was always ready to, and still always ready to help me and others. One occasion, I was with Tim Keller in the early 90s, and Keller said, I haven't taught my people well enough how to suffer. It was about a decade before 9-11. And I thought, I'm not sure what he's saying there. I'm not sure what that's all about. But I know that if he thinks that he needs to teach his people about suffering, if he needs to prepare them for suffering, I need to start doing that too. And over the years as I read other pastors who have led me and influenced me, I see that that is the common denominator of good pastors. They teach their people how to suffer in hard times. How to suffer in a way that gives testimony to defiant hope. How to suffer in such a way. How to serve in the midst of suffering in such a way that people see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. They say, why in the world would they do something like that? Why would they bring risk to themselves? Why would they discomfort themselves in order to serve? There must be some transcendental explanation. There's some love in them that I don't understand. One of those mentors from the past, the distant past, a man who died in the 1800s, who taught me a lot about pastoring people through crises was Samuel Miller, Presbyterian minister in in New York in the early 1800s, eventually a professor at Princeton Seminary. Many hard times in his day, including a yellow fever epidemic in New York population of New York was about 50,000 at the time, about the same as, as, as Memphis when the yellow fever, one of the six yellow fever epidemics hit us. And just as with in Memphis, 25,000 who had the ability and the means left the city, left the city of New York just as they did in, in Memphis. Many of the pastors, many of the physicians left. But Samuel Miller, the pastor, and his brother Edward Miller, the physician, stayed. Samuel Miller preached every week in his pulpit. He buried 185 of his people. He preached sometimes just a handful. Edward, his brother, answered every single call to every sufferer from yellow fever. When the epidemic finally passed... And the people came back who had fled. Samuel Miller never gave a word of rebuke. He just welcomed them back. He built up and extolled those who stayed. He praised the Lord for preserving his health and preserving his brother's health. His only lament was that not more had come to know Christ as Savior. Even though they had gotten so close to death. Let us be those brave ones, prudent for sure, vigilant and looking out for those underserved ones and those at risk around us. But let us be known, 2nd Pres, as that church who moved toward the danger to bring the real and courageous love of Jesus Christ in a time when our city needed us. And thank you for starting that movement today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for allowing us to be alive at a time like this, entrusting this crisis to us, Perhaps some of us will suffer with the illness. Perhaps some of us will die. But we pray that as you have throughout all of history, that even in these dark times, you would get a name for yourself. You would convince people around us that we have a blessed hope, that we have a hope that lies beyond this world a hope that enables us to act courageously even when we are afraid. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers at Second Prayers. Get a name for yourself in our witness and in our service, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.